you can unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you can unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current as a 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. Anomalous consumer access. Not over 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues of our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, the Olympics in Beijing have set records for how dismal the ratings have been. Americans just might be getting the message. I think it's time to wake up. But does our hotly divided nation have the fortitude to stare down another and more formidable communist foe? We have to go back to Reagan's policy towards the Soviet Union. We win, they lose, he said. Plus, legacy media has crossed the line. The news industry has been infiltrated, and if you no longer see news organizations as having the purpose of bringing facts to light, but you understand they are often little more than tools of propagandists, then it's mission accomplished if they've reported something false. That's why those reporters, instead of getting punished, they're promoted. All this and more, I'm Georgine Rice. Glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon at 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with China. Given how dismal the ratings are, some of you might need to be reminded that the Beijing Olympics are winding down this weekend. Viewership is about half of the Pyeongchang Games in South Korea in 2018, and the worst in Olympic history. Kevin McCullough turned to Bob Fu, founder of the group China Aid, from AM570 The Mission in New York City. What's your opinion? What's your take on why Americans seem so uninvolved in the Olympics this go-around? Well, Kevin, I'm glad that uh, more people are waking up um, by really not um, supporting uh, this genocide Olympics uh, with more viewership. So, look, um, we have seen the worst persecution against the independent faiths, including Catholic faith, including Protestant Christians, including between one to three million uh, predominantly Uyghur ethnic Muslims and the Kazakhs are in the concentration camp and uh, uh, committing a crime against humanity. These are recognized, well-documented. While we have seen the uh, persecution against Christians has reached the worst, we have not seen since uh, the Cultural Revolution 40 yeah. years ago. So well, you know, it's interesting. Is, uh, I think it's time to wake up. It's interesting, Bob, and I so appreciate your perspective on that because I do think that China has become a little bit in the culture, has just become sort of a, a talking point that people talk around, but they seldom address the, the real problems. And when you have an administration that's more or less laissez-faire about it uh, in the Biden people, that's problematic. But you've also got cultural icons like LeBron James and others that have actually run cover for the communist Chinese persecution of people. Indeed. And and uh, I'm just curious, Bob, if, if Christians or, uh, you know, well-intended Americans are listening today and they want to do something 
that makes a difference. What are you suggesting Americans do if they really do care about what's happening in China? Yeah, I, if those of uh, uh, your listeners who wants to uh, really make a difference and take some actions, I would encourage first be informed and better informed by knowing what's really going on, the uh, specific names of being persecuted. Pastors like Pastor Wang Yi, who received nine years imprisonment for preaching a sermon based on John 3.16. Pastor um, Chinese-American pastor John Tao received seven years imprisonment for helping 2,000 children for uh, in the minority area between China and Burma with a Christian education. And many other things, I mean, the persecution instances, they can go to ChinaAid.org website or Family Research Council, of course, and Voice of Martyrs and other uh, Christian ministries website to know more. It really does seem that a growing number of Americans are starting to wake up to the growing challenge we face from China. But recognizing a problem is really just the first step to anything we do in response to allow us to gain an upper hand on what our next guest has called The Bully of Asia, the title of his book. Stephen Mosier was a guest of Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. You've been before Congress since 2017. You sounded the alarm. It seems like that uh, we have this sort of secret society in this country and around the globe. People refer to it as the elites. And the big sellout has been, I think, by everybody who's got a deal that's either in Congress or the White House making money off the cheap labor in China. And now we don't make anything that keeps us in a strategic balance. They weren't listening to you then. What are you trying to tell them now? Well, I think people are listening now, Bill, because many of us have fallen ill from a virus that was released in China that was made in a lab. Uh, yes, as sir. part of the PLA bioweapons program. So if you look around the world at public opinion polls, uh, they have skyrocketed from 50 now to 80, 90 percent of people say that China, and by China we mean the Chinese Communist Party, is a threat when it costs you your job or closes your business or costs you the life of an elderly relative or makes you sick for a week. Then it tends to, to concentrate the mind a little bit about the threat uh, coming from East Asia. The 92 million members of the Chinese Communist Party who exploit viciously their own people in order to produce those cheap goods that wind up on the shelves of our big box stores. How can we even equate supporting an Olympics in China or Russia or any of the totalitarian countries, and uh, all we're going to do is not send our diplomats? You know, you've been sounding the alarm, and all through those years, they've been reverse manufacturing everything we've got. We've sort of encouraged them to do so. And I think the world certainly, I agree, is catching on. But I'm not so sure some of our officials in Washington, they get it, but I think they've got too much invested financially. True or not true from your point of view? Oh, absolutely. Uh, The Chinese Communist Party practices elite capture. They go into leading political families in the United States, not just uh, the Biden family, but uh, the Pelosi's and the Feinstein's and other families and offer them the relative sweetheart deals in China, the kind of deal where you can't lose money. You know, I mean, if nobody comes to your store in China, you've opened with the Chinese Communist Party, they'll help you pad the bottom line, and you'll still be in the black. So these are investments on which you can't possibly lose. They're really bribes by another name, and they're intended to shape the perception of leading politicians in the United States favorably towards China, so they will help shape 
U.S.-China policy in a way that's favorable to the Chinese Communist Party. And I have to say that because we've taken our eye off the ball for the last couple of decades, that they have, to a great extent, succeeded in capturing many of our elite, the lobbyists, Wall Street, and many of our politicians. The high-tech media, of course, wants access to the China market. So they've been captured as well. So we, we've got a ways to go to reverse this. I think we can, but it's going to take a sustained effort on the part of middle America, ordinary Americans. When we talk about the title of your book, Bully of Asia, I think about when I was in, I, I, I kind of got caught with some others uh, in Hong Kong smuggling a few Bibles into China. No big deal. We, we, got, we came home. But I remember that, and now I think about Hong Kong today. Talk about how vulnerable you are in a couple of areas, because you just spoke about the truth that, you know, we had all of our social media platforms, uh, you know, toss people off the page because they would uh, they would even suggest in the early days that there was something very wrong in the labs and it wasn't the wet market. And so but today that helped us all realize that when it comes to pharmaceutical drugs, when it comes to medical supplies, medical equipment such an imbalance of those being manufactured in China. The average person on the street will understand if we don't start bringing some of those economies back home, and as you have been telling Congress to decouple ourselves from their economy, I mean, was it all just cheap goods? Is that how we got this great imbalance with no idea about national security? Yeah, it sort of crept up on us over the years. The first big mistake, of course, was thinking that if China just uh, modernized, and, and became economically powerful, that it would democratize in the process. That hasn't happened. The Communist Party has an ironclad grip on the thoughts and minds and actions of the Chinese people right now. It's a high-tech digital dictatorship. But if we don't have from this administration hard and fast demands on China for reparations, for paying us back for all the damage, all the lives lost, I'm afraid they'll do it again. I mean, why wouldn't they? They launched a successful bioweapons attack on us once. We didn't do anything. We just pretended it. we don't know where it came from, and, and why wouldn't they do it again? Well, I'll tell you what. You talk about communism. You talk about a regime, a totalitarian regime. They have no, no patience for anybody of faith because they want themselves to be the focus of faith. Talk about those two people groups. Yeah, absolutely. The Chinese Communist Party is kind of a, a secular religion, and if you live in China, you must be an adherent of that religion. You cannot practice. You don't have freedom of conscience. Uh, you don't have freedom of thought. You don't have freedom of speech. You're expected to be a docile follower of the supreme leader, Xi Jinping. And basically, the Communist Party has set up a kind of pseudo-church of China, uh, which is uh, ideology is extreme nationalism. And everybody in China is supposed to be a member of the Church of China. And the acolytes in the church are the 92 million members of the Chinese Communist Party. And of course, the the head of the church is Xi Jinping himself. It's not a real church, of course. The Communist Party is atheistic. But what I intend to illustrate by saying that is they want to stamp out all forms of religion in China, starting with Christianity, because Christianity is in a special threat to continued Communist Party rule in China. They know that because of what happened in Eastern Europe and to a certain extent in Russia, although mm-hmm. Russia has gone backslid a little bit over the last few years. Christianity was central to overthrowing uh, communism in Poland and Eastern Europe, and uh, it's spreading rapidly in China today. Uh, God bless you for bringing Bibles into China. I started a couple of orphanages in China years ago, run by Christians. They've now been shut down because, guess what? The Communist Party doesn't want anybody else in China doing good works, not just 
not preaching the gospel, that's forbidden, but also doing good works because it makes the Communist Party look bad because they have to be the end all and be all of all things. What would be the first one or two things that you would suggest Congress to implement right away? Well, first, we have to go back to Reagan's policy toward the Soviet Union. We win, they lose, he said. And we need to win this confrontation for our children and grandchildren and for religious freedom. And we can win it by doing the opposite of what we've been doing for the last 30 years. We enable China's rise by giving them capital. The money flow has been tremendously important by giving them science and technology and by giving them access to our consumer market. We need to stop the flow of capital from Wall Street. We need to stop science and technology from being stolen from us. And we need to stop buying Chinese-made goods and, and move our supply chains to countries like India, the Philippines, Japan, and maybe even back to the United States. How does that sound? Well, I'll tell you what, it is long overdue. And folks, let me just tell you, always be aware of our our media. That's uh, quite frankly, in terms you can understand in cahoots with President Biden. Keep watching all the diversionary stories that's going to keep you from thinking about what we just talked about today. China is the number one threat today. Coming up... The scandal of legacy media. I saw this transformation whereby special interests and political interests became very effective at, I would say, taking over a large segment of media and the news industry. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we learned through the work of special counsel John Durham that the campaign of Hillary Clinton was doing computer surveillance of Donald Trump, first through Trump's office at Trump Tower, then after he was president through offices at the White House. It was a claim we heard from Trump over and over again and here with Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes. The biggest scandal was when they spied on my campaign. They spied on my campaign. Well, there's Leslie. no real evidence of that. Of course there is. No. It's all over the place. Leslie, Sir, they spied on my campaign and they got I, caught. Can I say something? You know, this is 60 Minutes, and we can't put on things we can't no, verify. You won't put it on because it's bad for Biden. We can't Look, put on things we can't verify. Leslie, they spied and, on my campaign. Well, we can't verify that. It's been totally that. verified. No. But the simple point is, it was true. At least on this point, Trump was right. And the confirmation that it was true this week was all but ignored by legacy media outlets. It's a pattern that's become all too common. But because it's common doesn't mean we should become accustomed to it. There is a story that is a real story, and legacy media either ignores or seeks to debunk it simply because it doesn't fit their preferred narrative. Cheryl Atkinson is an investigative journalist with 30 years experience, most visibly to many of us through her work at CBS. In 2014, she left, and her story is all the more relevant today. She was a guest of my colleague, Eric Metaxas. You don't win five you know, Emmy Awards for, for being a political hack or for just spewing out what people tell you. You're an investigative journalist, and you were awarded for that uh, from the industry. So what, what happened? Well, I think that's what put me on the outs. The industry changed, and I didn't change with it. 
So over the years after working in local news and CNN back when it was a news organization, and then more than 20 years at CBS, I saw this transformation whereby special interests and political interests became very effective at, I would say, taking over a large segment of media and the news industry to control what we do and don't report. And as that trickled into CBS, I think I was maybe on the leading edge of seeing it as an investigative reporter because the beat reporters weren't really doing as much reporting every day that was someone wanted to manipulate. That's changed a little bit now, but I'm talking about 15 years ago. But the stories that I did drew attention from very powerful interests who sought to use these new tactics at the time, social media, PR firms, bullying, Twitter, to try to stop the stories, controversialize them and the reporter, personally attacking the reporters and so on. And they were very effective in getting CBS certain managers to stop stories and to, in my view, it got to the point, put out dishonest and untrue information. If you didn't skew the stories or slant them the way they demanded on the front end, which I refused to do, then they either wouldn't air them, you know, they wanted them changed or they just wouldn't air them at all. So I decided mid-contract that there was really not a place for me anymore because I had really spent time after having this happen for a couple of years looking for other stories. There's, there's an endless number of stories you can report. So when they would sort of censor one area, I would go into another. But it got to the point where virtually nothing original would be published on CBS News that I did. And I was sitting around during the day with great, some of the best stories of my career that I couldn't get published. So I left mid-contract. Was there an inciting incident or was there a moment, a particular story that they wanted you to change or that they decided to bury that uh, upset you particularly, or did it just pile up? Well, it happened early on with less frequency. So the frequency got to be remarkable and prompted me leaving. But one of the first areas I noticed it in was in the early 2000s after being assigned to cover vaccines and autism, as many people were at the time, because we have this unexplained explosion of autism that the government had in private documents linked directly to, along with their medical experts, linked directly to vaccines in some cases, a very important topic is how many people take vaccines. We were all covering it. And that story was successfully changed by the pharmaceutical industry in partnership with political interests and corporate interests. You can't report that now. It's been so successfully controversialized and the problem's only gotten worse. But there were people having secret meetings with producers at CBS, people from the pharmaceutical industry, PR firms, law firms, and so on, who successfully skewed the stories and then got them entirely halted so that they really have no place on, on the news today. You know, if you're in the news business and somebody from Big Pharma comes to you and says, don't run this story, what, what are the kinds of things they say or that they could say to make people with their finger in the wind, so to speak, move in a certain direction? Well, it was pretty unusual back then. It's not now. That's what drew my attention for someone to say, don't air a story. You might have them say, put this side of the story on or represent my view this way. But I had not been frequently approached by anybody saying, don't let the public know the information. And as that happened with greater frequency, I knew something was going on. But the things they would say, including government officials who are trying to stop the stories, would say, if you report these stories about vaccines and autism, even if they're completely factual, they said it will scare the public 
and they'll turn away from vaccines and public diseases that we've eradicated will be rampant and you'll kill people or people will die. And I would say at first, when someone first says that to you, you get this sort of like, wow. But if you start thinking it out rationally as a journalist, it's not my job to decide how people use factual information that I give them and therefore to try to make them behave a certain way. It's up to the government. If facts come out that worry the public, the government needs to come up with a plan to reinstitute confidence in the program. That's not up to the journalists to hide facts so that the government doesn't have the problem of lack of confidence. But I also came to understand that the excuses they gave about this were really just a cover for the pharmaceutical industry interest that didn't want this out because they would lose a lot of business. Because if the crack of the door opens a little bit on some safety issues, there's just so many more to look at. And again, not saying vaccines are bad, not giving any particular advice. Obviously, they've some have done great good. But I'm just saying if this story were covered like any other rational story, then we wouldn't be censoring the facts because someone told us people might behave a certain way if they knew the truth. They figured out the formula and they're are foundations that put a great deal of money into this, that have nonprofits, some of which I've traced in my books, that have different names, but they're really all run by the same small group of multi-billionaire advocates and activists for certain uh, outcomes and things. And so in a hidden way, they're always pulling the strings, but they figured out how to get their nose under the tent of news organizations in a way I think the news organizations turned a blind eye to when it was happening. So underneath our own noses, our industry got kind of taken from us and co-opted. And now we are one in the same of these interests. They don't just influence us by sending us press releases or figuring out how to manipulate us. We've hired them to work in our newsrooms. Are, are you able to name some of the foundations or some, yeah, of, the, sure. some of the people um, involved? I drew out the chart because people had done it for the conservative side. There are conservative groups that try to do this. But every, every smear artist I talked to for the book, and a lot of them spoke to me on both sides of the political spectrum and those in the middle, they all pointed to the one they think is most successful, which is David Brock of Media Matters. And nobody had sketched out that organization the way I did. Um, it took a lot of work. And that one name is affiliated with probably, I think I found over 20 organizations, including at the time, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington and Blue Nation, and Media Matters for America, and groups that sound like they're fact-checking groups, but all they are are the same tools of the same propagandists that are trying to put across certain narratives. Coming up... The news industry has been infiltrated, and if you no longer see news organizations as having the purpose of bringing facts to light, but you understand they're often little more than tools of propagandists, then it's mission accomplished if they've reported something false. More of Eric's conversation with Cheryl Atkison. When the Christian Outlook returns in a few moments, stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com in five minutes. You will be the most informed person in the office. That's DaybreakInsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Bias in media is certainly nothing new. There has always been bias in reporting, whether it's recognized or not. 
But what we're seeing today is something altogether different. Stories that don't fit a given narrative never see the light of day. Yes, this happens on the left and on the right. But I should note, virtually all legacy media outlets are left of center. I'm referring to NBC, ABC, CBS, The New York Times, and the like. Well, let's pick up with more of the conversation between Cheryl Atkinson and Eric Metaxas. When you have people that really don't have a sense of these journalistic standards or we're already drifting away from them, uh, it's a different story. So these are conversations that we need to have about who are we as a nation? Who are we as a people? How low will we stoop? I mean, ultimately, they've given away the game. And I, I see zero pushback on the other side. I think that's right. I mean, I'll give you one specific example. Most news organizations had their own standards under which they would use an anonymous source. The general standards for us were, you don't use anonymous sources if, you know, in most cases. And then secondly, if you have to use an anonymous source in a story, you only do that if you fail to get any on the record comment that you could get, and this is the only way to get it. And then you characterize for the viewers or listeners or readers as much as possible who that person is without giving away their identity so that they can understand any potential conflicts of interest or where that person's coming from. Then we see what the New York Times did and others, you know, once they opened the door, everybody copied them. With Donald Trump, it was one anonymously reported story after another that proved to be false over and over and over again with no hint of who the people were who were supposedly giving the information with no idea what their conflicts of interest could be. And this was just one of the biggest, most egregious journalism breaches I'd ever seen. And it became very routine. You know, one question is, where's the shame? Um, You would think that people who got things dramatically wrong would feel some need to repent publicly, to apologize, at least to set the record straight. Well, no, I'll explain that. But first I'll say, to my knowledge, uh, Carter Page, who never met Donald Trump or spoke to him, but was spied on illegally by the government with falsified documents from an FBI lawyer who's been convicted for that with a slap on the wrist. He's never received an apology from anybody. No one's even said in the government or media, to my knowledge, we're really sorry we said you were a Russian spy based on nothing. And now we know that you were targeted improperly by the highest, most important people in this country. And no one's even said boo to him, you know, apologized or anything. But this can be fairly easily explained by something we touched upon earlier. The news industry has been infiltrated. And if you no longer see news organizations as having the purpose of bringing facts to light, but you understand they're often little more than tools of propagandists, then it's mission accomplished if they've reported something false that got people talking about it and thinking about it. That's why those reporters, instead of getting punished for the worst kinds of mistakes that wouldn't be allowed in journalism school or wouldn't used to be allowed in journalism school, They're promoted. There are reporters that had horrible records at Politico that got brought into the New York Times to report on Donald Trump. So the worst kind of reporting is rewarded because it's not really the reporting they're looking for. They're looking for narratives and propaganda and the reporters who are willing to do that. So if there's a mistake, it's really not a problem for them as long as the bad information circulated and did its job. When I see people like Joe Rogan uh, and uh, many, many others uh, who would never be characterized as uh, particularly conservative or overtly Christian, n- nonetheless, uh, being outraged uh, at the things that we're talking about. 
I feel hope. Uh, I, I see a Russell Brand has a podcast where he has, I think, five million people listening uh, to him. And he is no doctrinaire conservative. On the contrary, precisely the opposite. But it seems to me that, that people with eyes to see are seeing and talking and saying things. Uh, and, and in a way, that does give me hope that there are lots of voices out there, years among them, uh, who are speaking up. Well, I think those who are controlling the information landscape did themselves a disservice, and I'm glad they did, in a way, by overplaying their hand. They leapt ahead during the Donald Trump era in ways we've talked about by making their biases so obvious that what used to be sort of suspected and talked about by members of the public was, was no longer any question that this was happening. And same with the censorship. Instead of sort of, there's always been attempts to keep us from seeing certain information. And ever since the internet was invented, people trying to figure out how to keep us, make us see certain things and not see others. But by overtly censoring and cheering on, you know, obviously true information in some instances, and then pushing false information, you know, the government and media and others, I think they've overplayed their hand in a way that's made a lot of people recognize exactly what's going on. You can catch the complete interview between Eric and Cheryl Atkinson at ChristianOutlook.com. Coming up, technology, human innovation, and God's sovereignty. To an infinite God, what we can actually do with his creation is heavily limited. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy believes in the calling to politics and public service. As one of the few programs of its kind based at a leading Christian university, we prepare students for exciting careers in this vital arena through a curriculum that combines rigorous study of America's founding principles with the latest tools of policy analysis. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. So find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Much of what we've heard on the program thus far represents challenges born out of human innovation, the enormous power of our electronic media and how it's been used, the power of a communist China and their role in the current pandemic. And then, of course, we need to recognize that China is a surveillance state unlike anything mankind has ever seen. All of this could make us downright skeptical of the role of technology. But Tony Ranke's disposition to all this technological innovation is not what you might expect. He's the author of the new book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's one of the most thought-provoking books I've read in some time. He joined me on my program on KPDQ here in Portland. What I'm trying to do is go back to the Bible, go back to Genesis to Revelation, and, and get a better sense of, of what is God's relationship to human innovation and flourishing. Um, and there's a lot of cues that we find in the text. Well, I appreciate, um, you know, you're using the word um, innovation because when we think about uh, technology in the 21st century, we're talking, we're thinking about electronics for the most part. We yeah, don't remember right. what came before it that were innovations in their time that may have raised questions at that time. Um, you offer some key texts from Scripture that gives us some insight not only into what the Word says, but God's thinking and heart with regard to man's innovation. I think we begin probably at the Tower of Babel and sometimes think, well, that innovation uh, kind of tells us all we need to know about future innovations in our time and back then. 
Is that sufficient? Yeah. Well, no, it's definitely not. And uh, we have to go back before that to like page two or three of our Bibles into Genesis chapter four. And we need to trace out Cain's lineage. Why did God protect Cain's life when he is so worthy of being executed for the murder of his brother? You have to be patient with the text and let it flow out of, uh, of, of what it says, because what we find out is that God is going to preserve Cain's life because Cain's great-great-grandchildren are going to initiate three massive industries, the industry of cattle breeding, what we may think of today as rudimentary genetics, uh, and professional music, and metallurgy, the making of metal tools and weapons, all made possible by God's protective mercies over Cain's lineage. Cain is like the, the non-believer in the early part of the Bible. He's the, he's the rebel. He's the sinner. And God chooses this man uh, to bring about the first three major industries in world history. And that's before the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel comes along, and humans use technology. Big bricks are a new technology. It's something that man discovered, man invented, and man used that to try to idolize himself, try to um, glorify humanity in building a tower in a city. And that was sinful. That was wrong. That was against God's word. And so God breaks into that story. He hacks the whole thing. So that we don't only have one city, but that we have tens of thousands of cities now. And so that's, uh, that's one way that he breaks in. But it keeps going on from there. I mean, it goes on to, you know, David and Goliath are two, two guys that go toe-to-toe. They're two technologists. Uh, Goliath, of course, has his own technology, and David chooses a sling, which is another technology. It's a, it's a way to amplify human power. He's going to amplify the power of his arm into a sling, and he's going to basically play the role of a sniper. Uh, he be, he, he's the superior technologist in a one-on-one type of a battle. Those are just the early chapters of the Bible, and then you get into Job and the Psalms and Isaiah and uh, then the New Testament and Revelation 18 and Babylon. I mean, the the story is so expansive on what we can learn about God's relationship to human innovation. It it truly is unspeakable. Well, I appreciate that you force us to think differently about those innovations. Because they're primitive, we don't often credit them for yes. what they were at the time. And I love the, what you say about uh, the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. We don't think about yeah. God's hand at work in permitting and even in inspiring these innovations that we have all benefited by and benefit yeah. today. Yeah, and this is why I think in the last 100 years that was lost. But before that, it was it was in the uh, Reformed the- theologians of the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, even up to Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, who uh, developed this idea of common grace. Uh, a guy like John Calvin went so far as to say the same Holy Spirit that regenerates believers is the same Holy Spirit bringing about human innovation for human flourishing. Now, that to us, that will strike us as crazy talk. Uh, to speak in that kind of a strong language, but that's how a guy, a reformer like John Calvin was already talking about uh, common grace uh, back in his age, and Abraham Kuyper develops that out. But then by the time you get into World War One and World War Two, that common grace language really recedes in the background, and the church really struggles to talk about common grace, especially when we have these new powers of destruction, right? So we, once you get into the world wars, now when you talk about human, human innovation, we're talking about being able to kill at scale. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes a more complex conversation when you have a nuclear bomb. Um, and so I can see why the conversation kind of fell off the table, but it, the, that, that conversation over common grace is in Scripture and it should still be in the church today. You describe yourself as a tech optimist. Uh, what are some of the myths about technology that we as believers often embrace? 
Well, I mean, the, the myth that stands out to me is the one that uh, human innovation is somehow an inorganic sort of imposition that we've pressed on to creation. It's sort of like we, we sort of force creation to give us an iPhone or we force creation to give us nuclear power or we force creation to give us social media or we force creation to give us um, gasoline or we, you know, we, for, we somehow bring this will of ours into creation and sort of invent things out of out of nothing, out of scratch. And that's just not how it works. And what I show throughout the book is that God has actually put in place nine different limiters on what we can invent. And in fact, we can do very few things. <laughs> for, a, for a finite mind like us, it seems like it's infinite. It seems like we can do anything we want. But to an infinite God, what we can actually do with his creation is heavily limited. It's highly channeled. Um, ask anyone who's tried to start a, a startup in Silicon Valley or someone who owns a, uh, a patent of how, how hard it is to actually make money on a startup idea or a patent. Very few people can do it. Very few people actually make money off a startup, off of a patent, because there are so many factors involved in limiting what we can actually produce and make. And that's one of the arguments that I make. I think there's nine limiters that we see in Scripture where we don't have this sort of unlimited palette to do whatever we want. It's highly constrained by God. Well, and I think that's part of the fear that we often have is that there is no restraint, that if given enough time and given the appropriate um, resources that we can do anything, and that is kind of a frightening yeah. thought to many. But as you point out, the scripture makes it clear that is not the case. The sovereignty of God doesn't somehow uh, stand apart from and aside from uh, technological advances. That's exactly right. And we see this in Isaiah 28 when God is telling us how farmers learn how to use tools, how to make tools, and then use those tools to actually bring about a crop and to bring about grain that will be turned into bread. Um, the tools are actually coded into the created order. So we see that in Isaiah 28. So it's as if the creator is teaching the farmer how to farm. Coming up, looking forward to the day when all that man has built all that man has created will pale in comparison to what we face in the new creation. We're going to walk away from whatever gadgets we have at that time, whatever houses we have at that time, whatever vehicles we have at that time. More of my conversation with Tony Ranke when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Tony Ranke, in his book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is not skeptical of human innovation. In fact, he's confident that God's purposes will be fulfilled. In his book, he emphasizes the Christian's need to keep perspective of the end of the story. Let's return for a few more moments of my conversation with Tony Ranke. You write in the book that a total tech disengagement is coming. It's hard to imagine that possibility, yeah. but what do you mean by that? <laughs> What I found when I was writing this book, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is that as I was trying to understand uh, a biblical theology of technology, meaning taking the theme of, of technology and going Genesis to Revelation canonically through the whole Bible, mm -hmm. what I realized at some point in my research was I was just basically doing a biblical theology of the city. 
And so in the, in the biblical storyline, technology and the city are just one storyline. What that means is when you get to the end of, of the Bible, when you get to Babylon, uh, the city, the biggest, most technologically advanced, most opulent city the world has ever seen in Revelation chapter 18, what that means is this apex of technology, this apex of wealth, this apex of comfort is going to be interrupted and judged by God in the end. We know that from, from his word. Babel is the city of all cities. It's the composite of all our cities. And what we read in that text is that God calls his people out of the city before he judges it. And the angels are actually the ones who call God's people out of Babylon before he judges it. And so you can think about this, you know, through rapture language, if that's kind of the the language that you would use, or just the tech disengagement, which is kind of how I would talk about it. But there comes a point in time when God's church is going to be called out of the city. We're going to walk away from whatever gadgets we have at that time, whatever houses we have at that time whatever vehicles we have at that time, we're going we're gonna to step out of the city, and God is going to come down and judge, finally, uh, man's cities, man's epicenter of rebellion. And he's going to put in their place something better, a city that he's designed and he has built, and he is going to place in its place. And that's the, the new creation to come that we long for and, and can't wait for. But what that means is that we now have a vision for the technologies in our life, like our computers, our TVs, our smartphones, our microphones, our telephones, our microwaves, our dishwashers. Um, the gasoline we burn in our cars that are so technologically advanced, Mm -hmm. like all of the things that we have, we will eventually turn away from. And that, I think, when we look at at Revelation 18, it's a a good reminder that one day we are going to be called out of the city, called away from our technologies. And uh, in, in some sense, this is why I admire the Amish and the Mennonites, because They've already done that in in some sense. Mm-hmm. It, I think they've done that a little bit too early, but <laughs> but I do admire that they did it, you know, and that they've stepped out of the city. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. There's more to my conversation with Tony Ranke. You can listen to the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alec Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. Great news from Rocket Mortgage. You could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash-out refinance today. In fact, in the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. That means you could unlock thousands of dollars. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock all that cash in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up because nobody knows how long these low rates will last. Put your hard-earned money to work. Make your life better. Build a home office. Remodel your kitchen. Or simply save that cash for a rainy day. Today's rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.25%, 3.48% APR, so you can lock in a great low monthly payment. When you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. That's 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rates current as of 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. NMLS consumeraccess.org number 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information.